Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm Rob Kent, but don't skip. I know some of you savvy, uh, esteemed audience members, go ahead and skip ahead because you know I'm going to talk for a couple of minutes about my books. Uh, and you just get, get to the great content, get to MG Hennessy. I understand. That's your reward for uh, being a regular listener or viewer. Um, but you might want to stay tuned because I'm about to announce an exciting contest. Um, the show is available on... Uh, uh, Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, all the uh, standard podcast places, but you can also watch us live on YouTube. If you haven't checked out the show on YouTube, uh, check it out. The channel is just Rob Kent or do a search for Middle Grade Ninja. We're going to come right up. I've uh, been doing a lot of work on YouTube uh, this past week, been putting, uh, breaking down the longer episodes into short, easy to digest clips. Um, so, you know, if you're thinking, Man, Lamar Giles made such a great point, but I don't know if I want to listen to that whole two-hour podcast again. I got you covered. It's uh, going to be broken down into a five- or ten-minute clip, so check out uh, Rob Kent at YouTube uh, and subscribe. It's free. Uh, you'll get updated. Next time uh, the podcast goes live, you'll be able to watch us live. Um, and if you subscribe between now and, let's see, it's uh, July 10th. Nobody likes math, so let's just say from now to August 15th. We'll call that a month. Uh, to August 15th, if you subscribe to my channel, Rob Kent, uh, I've got nice free copies of Something Like Gravity by previous guest Amber Smith and the Echo Park Castaways by tonight's guest, M.G. Hennessy. What a deal. That's like $40, $50. I don't, I don't math so well, but it's a lot of money in books that I'm just going to give you for free because they sent me ARCs. Uh, my arc is all beat up and, and, and marked with notes. I'm keeping that one. But this nice pristine copy, this can be sent to you. And if you act now, I will throw in a copy of any one of my books. Your choice. You pick one of my books. I will sign it for you. I will send it along with uh, the Echo Park Castaways and something like Gravity. The only thing you have to do is between now and August 15th, go to YouTube, to Rob Kent, uh, and subscribe. Smash the subscribe button. It's free. It helps me grow the viewership and helps me promote authors. Why wouldn't you want to help something like that? It'll be amazing. And I hear what you're saying. Rob, I might subscribe but not get a free book. Well, that's where you're wrong, friend, because my book, Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, is available to download free as an audio book. I'm sorry, as an ebook right this moment. It's also available as an audiobook. Uh, if you've got Audible, you could use a credit, then it's free. Otherwise, you got to pay some money, but it's worth it. It's so good. Uh, and then, uh, of course, Bandicoot Bones and the Alligator People is also available. Uh, if you say, Rob, I like the show Middle Grade Ninja, but I'm not that much of a middle grade fan, I got you covered. Under the super <laughs> secret pad, uh, pen name Robert Kent, I write horror novels like All Together Now, a zombie story, and All Right Now, a zombie story, also available as audiobooks. I know you like listening to things if you're listening to this. Check that out, narrated by the wonderful David Radke. Uh, and then also the Book of David, uh, which is a five-volume serial horror story. Uh, this is uh, in the style of Stephen King. Um, it is uh, violent. It's profane. It's everything you might want if you're tired of middle grade and you want something with a lot of a lot of bite. I get real political with some religious satire toward the end. Uh, and flying saucers all through. That's an alien on the cover with horns. You can't you can't miss with the Book of David. And I will let you download the Book of David, chapter one, the first of five chapters, for free as an ebook right now. Whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. So go get your copy. 
Uh, I know you missed us terribly over the 4th of July holiday. Uh, took a couple of weeks off, but we are back and back with a vengeance because we are doing back-to-back -back episodes, if you can believe it, tonight. Uh, we're talking to M.G. Hennessy tomorrow. Come back about this same time. I'm going to be talking with author Debbie Daddy. Uh, no, sorry, I believe it's Debbie Daddy. Uh, Debbie Daddy, uh, among other things, is the author of uh, Vampires Don't Wear Polka Dots. You know you've read that book. You love that book. The uh, Baylor School, uh, was it Baylor School uh, Kids uh, Adventure Series is one of the three top-selling uh, series through Scholastic of all time. Uh, over 34 million copies sold. Do you think Debbie Daddy's got some things she could tell us about middle grade fiction and writing successfully? You bet she does. Uh, so come back tomorrow night. We'll be chatting with her. Uh, stay tuned. Check out middlegradeninja.com for updates for all future guests. Uh, and that's it. I'm out of steam. By God, let's talk to M.G. Hennessy. <laughs> How are you tonight? I'm great. How are you doing, Rob? I am wonderful. Thank you so much for uh, making the time to be here. I... Uh, cried just a little bit this afternoon into my mashed potatoes as I was reading the end of the uh, Echo Park Castaways. Without spoiling, it's the best use of an R2-D2 alarm clock in, <laughs> in all of literature as far as I'm concerned. But That's why I wore my shirt. <laughs> little sensitive. Perfect. <laughs> so aside from being an absolute Star Wars nut, which absolutely comes through in the Echo Park Castaways, uh, tell the esteemed audience a little bit about yourself and your career thus far. So my name is M.G. Hennessy, and I'm the author of two middle grade books. One is uh, The Other Boy, the first one. I brought props and Ron's nice. props recommendation. This is, just came out in paperback. Very exciting. And this is actually the story of a 12-year-old transgender boy named Shane who has been living stealth, uh, which means when he moved to Los Angeles from San Francisco, he decided he was not going, he was just going to go to school as himself. He'd already transitioned. He was assigned female at birth, but he's living as his true self, which is a boy. So none of his friends know, none of his teachers know, his baseball coach doesn't know. And as he gets older, he's kind of trying to toe the line between what's private and what's secret and whether or not it's safe to tell people. And then um, he gets outed at school by a bully and has to kind of come back from that. Um, and then Echo Park Castaways is about four foster kids, um, who are sharing the same house and, uh, three of them have been there for a while. Their foster mom's kind of negligent to be perfectly honest, but she's, uh, it's a safe house. You know, it's one of the better situations most of them have been in. Um, Nevea, the oldest girl has actually cycled through multiple homes. And so they're all pretty keen to stay. Uh, and a boy with Asperger's, Quentin, gets assigned to their house and keeps trying to run away, which is really upsetting the balance of the house. You know, the foster mom's already threatened to stop fostering. Um, so they decide, they, they realize what he wants to do, he's trying to run away to get back to his mother. And so they undertake a quest to help him do that. And so actually the original title of the book was The Epic Quest of the Echo Park Castaways, which I, personally loved, but they said it was too long. <laughs> it so would be difficult like, to fit on the uh, top of a blog post, just to be perfectly honest. But it is a great I title. Know. <laughs> it is a great title, right? I was like, I really want it. Or, you know, my second thing was like, well, what if we just put like an epic quest in parentheses underneath? <laughs> they didn't go for that either. <laughs> well, that seems like a fair compromise. Right? I thought so too. I should have yeah. been there. I'd have talked him into it. That's I know. <laughs> that's a good deal. Who doesn't love an epic quest? I mean... You know, that's the whole point. They have to kind of 
have this series of misadventures that by the end of the book kind of brings them together as a found family. We're going to talk uh, writing, publishing, a little bit of everything, um, but let's let's stick with the art, Echo Park uh, Castaways and Epic Quest. Um, <laughs> we'll just we'll just amend that here. Um, <laughs> it reminded me quite a bit uh, of Adventures of Babysitting uh, that, that mm. kept coming into my head a little bit because it's there's the older responsible uh, Nevaeh uh, who's looking after uh, three kids on on an epic quest. Uh, and I don't know how much to say about the, the story without spoiling, but it is hilarious in parts. Uh, it is heartbreaking in parts. Um, uh, usually one of my first questions uh, for authors uh, is who is the ideal reader for this story? You know, I'm really a big believer in, you know, the whole windows and mirrors things where, you know, I, I work with foster kids um, as a court appointed advocate. So basically, I'm assigned to one kid for their duration of their journey through the system, which is usually around two years, give or take. Um, and I just kind of fill in the gaps where the social workers can't do something like, you know, they tend to be very overwhelmed. So if, you know, for my last case, I had to help someone find a new school or if they want to take horseback riding lessons, I see if I can find a place that will donate them for free and find them transportation there and back. So I'm sort of responsible for providing the extras and just being another voice in the hearings um, to help the kids with, you know, whatever they're, you know, trying to get through, like to be another st steady force in their lives. Um, for this book, I, you know, it was really important to me that a foster kid would see themselves reflected, that the experiences be very real and true to what is actually experienced in the foster care system. But Largely, I really want it to be for anyone in this age group, you know, or really anyone older. I mean, I think, you know, there's no reason that adults can't read middle grade fiction. I think some of the absolute best books that I've read in the last five years have been middle grade. Um, and I know that when I was growing up, I didn't know anything about I me, mean, really, honestly, until I started researching a different book about foster care. I had no idea how broken the system is and how many issues there are in it. Um, and so that was something that I really wanted people to understand because, you know, it's entirely possible. I and mean, we have 30,000 foster kids here in Los Angeles. So if your kids go to school in Los Angeles, it's entirely likely that they are going to school with foster kids and they don't even know it. And that these kids might be going through an incredibly traumatic situation. Um, and, kids who are not in foster care have no idea what that's like. So I think it's really important to provide kind of a window into that world and just, you know, make everyone aware of it because um, my big belief in why I work in this system is so many of these kids end up homeless or in jail within a, just a couple of years of getting out of the system. Um, I think that a lot of the problems we have you know, in a larger sense in society could actually be fixed if we helped these kids when they're still young. And I think one of the ways to help them is to raise awareness so that a kid reading this book, you know, grows up knowing like, hey, this is, there's a whole group of people out there who need this kind of help. And maybe they're inspired to help them down the line. Anybody uh, reading the book, anybody listening or watching to this, you're, you're about to become aware that this is a problem that, that, that we all need to take seriously. You know, I, I went to a small uh, Indiana high school with a graduating class of just under 200, I believe. Mm -hmm. uh, and we had foster kids uh, throughout. Yeah. Um, so how long have you been working in the, in the foster system? 
Um, I've been doing this for, uh, I guess this is my third year now. And um, I also, prior to that, I work in a program called LifeWorks where I'm a mentor. Uh, and that's, I work with uh, mostly people who are transgender or gender expansive. So that was kind of the inspiration for the other boy. And when I was working in that program, a lot of the kids that we get are actually homeless or in the foster care system because they've been, they were kicked out of their homes after coming out to their families. So I kind of, you know, became aware of that population and what they were dealing with through that. Like I learned a lot more about foster care then. And so that kind of morphed into me working on this second book that was a social issues book. And unfortunately, there's a, a lot of that here in the Midwest as well. Uh, that's one of those things that uh, never to get too involved in, in religion or politics. But that's one of those yeah. things that when we talk about religion, that should make you suspect right there. Something with the power to turn parents against their children. is That should be approached with a, with a bit of caution. Yeah. So, no, and I think it's really challenging. I mean, it's it's a hard problem because, you know, I will say that everyone I know who works in the system from the lawyers to the social workers to most of the foster parents that I've met are all wonderful and really devoted to helping these kids. But it's just the volume of it is completely overwhelming, you know, and we just don't have enough foster homes. Like there are enough great foster parents out there. And so, you know, when we're trying to place a kid, I mean, it can be like a hundred phone calls to find a spot. So what uh, can people watching or listening do to help? You know, I mean, there's a lot of things you can do to help, whether it's, I mean, if you have the time, I highly recommend becoming a CASA or a GAL. They are, you know, nationwide. Um, they're, I'm sure there's an organization in your area if you're in the United States. And basically you go through a training program and then you get assigned, like I said, to one kid. And, you know, that's what makes it so special is I, I'm always been a believer that if you can change one life, it'll have a ripple effect. You know, and for me, I know volunteering having that like one-on-one -on -one connection really makes me feel like I'm having more of an impact. Like I can do more than I could if I was just showing up at a soup kitchen once a month. Not that that's not great too, but um, you know, it really doesn't take that much time. And I think that's the thing is like, if you can't foster kids yourself, volunteer as a CASA. If you don't have the time for that, consider don donating one of those donations because you know, we're always pressed for cash and we even have special funds for stuff like what I was saying before, like you can donate to a special fund that will help pay for a kid to get horseback riding lessons or piano lessons or something that makes such a huge difference in their lives that gives them something to hang on to. I mean, in my experience, the kids who really transform are the ones who find that thing that's special to them, you know, and so, you know, actually last year there was a kid who um, his CASA got him into a boxing program at a local gym. They donated sessions for him and that discipline that he learned there. I mean, he'd been on the verge of dropping out of school. He'd been having all sorts of behavioral problems and having this outlet to channel that his frustration, his energy in a positive way completely turned him around and he ended up graduating from high school and going to community college and continuing in this boxing program and also volunteering to help out with the boxing classes for younger kids. So, you know, I mean, that's just, it's a small example, but that's the thing. It's, it, it doesn't take much, you know, or, or if you're, if you have an organization where you 
give have run a camp or have horseback riding classes or box like if you whatever you do if there's a way to be like hey you know what maybe i'll see if there's you know i'll reach out to the local casa organization and see if they'd be interested in having me donate some sessions of this you know not cash but just actual time like that would be huge that's something you can pretty much do on on any budget and so i wanted exactly. to ask you um you uh, wrote in your afterward i want to get the the wording right uh that one of the purposes of writing this book was you wanted to lay bare the inadequacies of the foster care system so what kind of inadequacies are we talking about what needs to be uh, made public i mean again like i think that you know as i said one of the big issues is we just don't have enough foster families and um, part, you know, at least I know here in Los Angeles, um, we are we've lost half the foster families over the last ten years. And partly that's just because there's so much bureaucracy to go through to become a foster parent. You know, you've really got DCFSF heavily in, involved in your lives to an extent that not everyone's comfortable with. Um, they slash the financial incentives that people are getting paid. So it became something that was less and less appealing to people. Um, you know, and I, again, like, I think, you know, I don't want to get political, but when we talk about kids getting separated from their parents at the border, a lot of those kids end up in our foster care system here. So we've received, we've gotten an average of, you know, I think it's an additional 3000 or 4,000 kids over the last year. And that's, you know, a huge burden on a system that was already straining under its own weight. So the kid that I'm working with now, it took me six months just to get her an eye exam. You know, she needed glasses. It took six months and anything, you know, it feels like every request that we make, like we go in for a hearing, the judge issues a bunch of orders, like let's get her this and this and this, and it all sounds great. And then you realize like the wait list for all of those things is months long. Like by the time the appointment comes, you've almost completely forgotten that you were going to do it. So, you know, I think that's tough. Like it's just volume. I mean, in Los Angeles, a social worker handles twice as many cases as a New York caseworker. And I think in New York, you know, in all of New York state, they only have, they have 20,000 foster kids. We have 30,000 just in LA County. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy. So are some of the um, things that uh, are, are being talked about here in the Echo Park Castaways at one point, Nevea recalls uh, a home uh, where you've got an old couple that, um, uh, why I, I think they're medium age couple, um, but they are, uh, they've got sewing machines in the basement and they put the kids down there and they've got them uh, working on, um, oh, what was it for an online business? Some kind of dog, uh, beds. Day, dog beds. Yes. Uh, is yeah, that I based mean, on, a, on a real, was there a real ancillary event to that? You know, that's not based on an actual story. There have been stories like that nationally. Um, it's not uncommon that the kids get used as kind of free labor. Uh, I, you know, I, I think with middle grade fiction, I was kind of towing the line between, you know, there are some much more horrific stories, but that wouldn't be appropriate to include. And I wanted to show just how awful some of these placements can be without going over that line. Um, and I actually have a good friend who grew up in foster care, whose Nevaeh is largely based on, you know, she's an African, African American, um, woman who spent, you know, 11 years in, I think 13 homes. And, you know, we've talked a lot about her experiences. So, you know, the, the truth is that a lot of that stuff happens and it never gets reported. Well, that's, 
And, and I don't want to give uh, listeners or, or viewers, esteemed audience, the, the wrong impression. This is a, a very fun middle grade book. It's <laughs> age appropriate. Uh, it's less than 200 pages. You'll fly right through it. Um, and I, I think that the only uh, profanity I caught was an ASS. Oh my God! Yes. Uh, I apologies, gentle listeners. <laughs> if you, uh, if, if if somebody somewhere somebody's fainted or, or clutched their pearls. Oh my Lord! He, he spelled a bad word. Um, so it's it's very much age appropriate. There should be no hesitation in recommending this for any young readers in your life. But it is a very serious subject, and you do a nice job of um, uh, of, of, of uh, illustrating. Uh, the severity of the situation without ever crossing middle grade lines. Was that ever a hindrance to you not being able to, to say uh, more interesting and colorful language that would presumably be used by members of this age group um, or to be able to you know, further go into details on, on some of the darker aspects of the system? You know, I really didn't feel like it was. I mean, it's funny, you know, and you're right. Like, I think, you know, one of the problems with social issues books, I mean, I've got two kids who are, you know, 13 and 14 right now, and getting them to read a social issues book can be really challenging sometimes because I think there's a misperception that they're like work, you know, that they're not fun. And so, you know, like you said, like, even though what we're talking about right now is very serious about sort of the larger issue, I didn't really, you know, I put that mostly in my afterword and it's in the book, but I thought it was important for the book to be funny, you know, and I think the characters are very funny, especially Vic, he like, and Quentin cracks me up constantly. Um, and I think it was also really important to me with both of these books, because they do deal with serious subject matter, that they would have a hopeful ending. You know, not an unrealistic ending and not an unearned ending, but a hopeful one, because you know, like I said, with my kids, I know that if the ending isn't at least a little bit happy, they are done. Like they are not. <laughs> they hate that. I mean, really, like they absolutely cannot stand it when that happens. Um, and even in the example that you gave, you know, with the ASS, I mean, it's the funny thing about that is it's not even like being used as a swear word. It's a misunderstanding of Asperger's mm -hmm. and what and you know, and like a kid mishearing it. And that's something that I was always doing as a kid. So I always think it's really funny when kids do that. I didn't, it didn't really restrict me. I mean, I think a lot of it is that for all that they've gone through um, at their heart, these kids, you know, particularly Vic and Mara and Quentin are very innocent, even for their age. You know, they've got this strange sort of dichotomy where, um, you know, there, there's part of them that has seen more than most kids their age, but they also kind of cling to this childhood, you know, and Vic's whole fantasy life about being a super spy and, you know, doing missions and all of that. Like, I feel like that's kind of like a, a shell for him. You know, it's a safe space that enables him to actually be more childlike than maybe other kids in his grade and situation would be. That was a fantasy. I I, I was expecting the uh, <laughs> super uh, secret. I wanted you to. Oh I wanted people to kind of question it. Yeah, for that for the first chapter, right? For his first chapter, I I wanted people to sort of be like, wait a minute, what's happening here? And I initially started the book on that, and my editor wasn't having it. She thought it was too confusing. Um, I don't know. I mean, I always feel like we don't give kids enough credit. I think that they're much more sophisticated readers than. They're sometimes, you know, 
thought of as being. Um, I mean, my kids read it, it, it read, like read that version of it and had no problem with it right from the start. And I think it's, um, you know, spoilers aside, I think, it, I think it's pretty obvious early on um, that as much fun as Vic is having and as much as we want it to be true, uh, that, it, that it's probably, you know, we'll read the book, yeah. find out, uh, but it's, it, it's, it's maybe not true. Uh, and oh heck, it's, it's very heartbreaking when, 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 when he comes to the realization that it's not true. So it's, stay tuned, you're going to laugh, but you're, you're also <laughs> going to cry a little bit before the end. So you're going to feel good. It's very sweet. And, and the ending is uplifting. So you're, you're, you're going to have a good time. Um, let me ask you about uh, writing from three perspectives, because uh, you're writing from Nevaeh's perspective, you're writing from Vic's perspective, which is lots of fun, and then Quentin's perspective, uh, yeah. which is extra fun, because Quentin just sees the world in a, in a way that uh, very few uh, do. Uh, so what was the advantage of writing from those three perspectives rather than a single perspective narrative? Um, I really wanted to get as close to the points of view of each of these characters as possible. You know, it's a third person book, but it kind of feels like a first person when you're in each character's perspective. Um, and I think it just gives you a larger picture of the story. And I think it also, you know, I like, I mean, the other boy is actually entirely first person. And I think that really worked for that book. Um, for this book, I wanted to show like, since it is sort of an ensemble piece, I wanted to show how some of the perceptions that they had of each other were the result of misunderstandings or miscommunication. How, you know, one of the reasons that they were all living these kind of separate existences um, were because they had put up these walls themselves. And so having the chapter shift from one to the other is sort of emblematic of those walls. Um, and I've got some questions about why the youngest character in the book, Mara, doesn't have her own point of view sections, um, how she's more of, you know, just a participant in the other people's stories. And uh, I got a couple of comments from people who weren't crazy about that. They wanted to see her perspective. Um, I don't know. I mean, I felt like the thing about Mara is she is in a way like the conscience of the book, you know, like she sort of embodies like all of this, the best of all of them, you know, and she's also largely the engine that propels a lot of the plot along when you go back and look at the story, even though that's not necessarily apparent while you're reading it. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I always, I like challenging myself with writing too. I feel like it's good to kind of, you know, undertake different techniques as you progress as a writer. And so this was one that I really wanted to try. Yeah, you know, there are some books, I, I never book shame, so I won't name them, uh, but where you're reading multiple perspectives, like this is just the author, come on. <laughs> I, I know this voice, we've been doing it for two other chapters as, as other characters, but it's all the same. And these are uh, three very, very distinct uh, voices. Did you write them uh, simultaneously or did you uh, write uh, one character story and then another character story to keep them them separate in your, your mind? How, how, how did you write it? No, you know, honestly, I just wrote it the way that it happened. I mean, it was a linear book for me. So, you know, I literally just like originally, you know, I think it starts now with Quentin, but originally it started with Vic and I literally just cycled like one, two, three, one, two, three, like scene by scene from one character to the next and kind of what each of them was going through at that point. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, you know, and I'm also not one of those people who plots, like I really, 
didn't know what this story was going to be. I had like a very like overarching idea, you know, that it was going to be sort of like my homage to Stand By Me, which is one of my all time favorite movies. And I wanted that kind of feeling, you know, that sort of like childhood innocence and, you know, kid, like a book basically that's largely without adults, right? You know, when the adults are present, they're generally sort of interfering with what the kids are trying to do. Um, so I wanted to have that sense as you go through, you know, as you go with them from uh, Echo Park to Torrance, California, which, you know, anyone who lives out here can tell you is not an easy thing to do without a car. <laughs> Makes sense to me. And, um, oh, I had a burning question for you and it's gone right out of my head. That happens. Oh, right out. So It'll uh, let's, uh, let's talk about Quentin in the meantime, because uh, that was a perspective that really interested me, not just because that's where we get the, the bulk of our Star Wars references. Yeah. In fact, before I ask about Quentin, I have to ask about Star Wars, um, because it, it pains me to even think this thought. Uh, Star Wars is obviously something that's going to be with us uh, in perpetuity, I imagine, now that Disney has their hands on it. We're going to yeah. get movies forever, I imagine. Do you, was it ever a concern in referencing so much the original trilogy um, that that might not be the version of Star Wars um, most uh, familiar to current uh, readers? I, I don't know if that's a thing. I'm, I'm just wondering if, if, um, if the, you know, the JJ trilogy would be the one to focus on now, because I'm thinking even, God, it pains me because I remember seeing Phantom Menace in the theater uh, and walking out. I was the only person, by the way, that, that wasn't completely devastated. Uh, they were all just walking out. Like, it was, the acting was bad. Like, it's a Star Wars movie. The yeah. acting bad. It's fine. <laughs> there was a pod race. They had lightsabers. Still the best lightsaber fight for my money. I'm defending the Phantom Menace. That dark lightsaber fight worth the price oh, of admission. It's blasphemy. Uh, in, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, that's blasphemy. Oh, oh we're, we're enemies for the rest of the show. That's, that's unfortunate. Do you want to rank your favorite Star Wars movies? Um, I mean, I, you know, honestly, the, you know, episode four, A New Hope was like, that was the first movie I ever saw in a theater that was not animated. It was my first live action movie ever. So that will always hold a very special place in my heart. And, you know, and it's funny, I mean, actually... One of the, um, I wrote, when I was researching Quentin's character in particular, I watched a lot of, I talked to a lot of friends who have children who are autistic, you know, or somewhere along the autism spectrum. Um, my nephew is actually on the autism spectrum. And I also watched a lot of documentaries about autism. And in one of them, there was a boy who was absolutely obsessed with Star Wars. And I think, you know, for him and, and actually with my kids, in some ways, they have more access because of streaming to these movies than I ever had when I was a kid. Like, you know, I mean, I think, you know, we had a video cassette of it that I wore out when I was like in sixth or seventh grade. I think we finally got a VCR. But, you know, I mean, like I'm a dinosaur, you know, I, I was growing up in that era. So oh, I watched even the original the trilogy on beta. <laughs> so sure. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I think actually for my kids, they have all of them, you know, on in the cloud. And so they just watch whichever ones they prefer. And for them, they actually really do prefer the first. They love the first and the second. You know, they love episode four and five um, Empire, even though it doesn't have the happiest ending. They love that one. 
Um, they really, my kids do not like the middle movies, like the one, two, and three. They do not like those movies at all. And they've been thrilled with the latest ones just because Ray is such a great character and having a girl really propel it forward, I think has been huge for them. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I worried about it a little bit, but I also felt like when I was writing this, you know, actually for both books, I mean, my kids were right in that strike zone, you know, when they were that age. So it means that like, I know how these kids talk. I know what a lot of their pop culture stuff is. I mean, my kids actually went through a whole summer where they were obsessed with I Love Lucy. And they watched every, they watched the like every episode of I Love Lucy, like th I think three times, like they just kept going back through the seasons over and over again. So it's just kind of hilarious because because they have access to things that you would think they would find super dated, but they love them. So yeah, I wasn't as concerned about that part. I agree. And uh, for those uh, members of esteemed audience who are internally curious, uh, Empire is also my favorite Star Wars movie. So there you go. Um, although you've re you've uh, redeemed yourself. <laughs> Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna unredeem myself because uh, I <laughs> genuinely enjoy Revenge of the Sith. The 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 prequel trilogy uh, is kind of it's hit and miss. It's better than not a Star Wars movie for the most of it, but a yeah. few grown and in, inducing moments in that third film when Obi Wan and uh, and oh God, Anakin Skywalker I almost forgot uh, have that uh, lava fight. Ooh, oh my God, the lava fight! Oh no no no! Nope. <laughs> We're just gonna have to agree to disagree with it, I suppose. <laughs> so let's uh, let's talk about autism. Just one note on that, though. So here's the one thing that really bothered me about that is apparently they still had like that, you know, speed of light technology for their ships at that point, but they didn't have ultrasound, so they had no idea she was having twins. Like, I felt like <laughs> <laughs> well. I mean. <laughs> I like how they tried to sneak in an internet-like uh, capability in the in the in the new series. Like, yeah, no, yeah. The, the ships are all connected, of course. Yeah, we of totally course. That. <laughs> <laughs> People like living in these big bulky rooms. Nobody brought a beanbag chair or something. <laughs> oh, <no>. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, Let's talk a little bit about uh, autism, just because it's, I, I would think, a very challenging thing to write from the perspective of an autistic character. So how did you get in Quentin's head? What tips can you give uh, esteemed audience about writing uh, from the, an autistic perspective? Um, yeah, that was really challenging for me. And actually, we, uh, we did have a lot of sensitivity readers for this book. Um, and I really appreciated one of them was the parent of an autistic child who really appreciated their viewpoint. And, you know, by and large, actually, they really enjoyed the voice. They were, there were a couple of things that they wanted me to tweak, which I did end up tweaking. Um, I had a few too many personality ticks and obsessions initially in the, you know, in the earlier drafts of the book. Um, you know, I didn't want him to be Rain Man. I didn't want it to sound too much like Curious Incident of the Dog in the Night. Uh, you know, and that's, and I think that's true. And I also didn't want to make it comical. You know, I wanted Quentin to be like, he has a very different perspective on the world than the other kids, but I didn't want to make him laughable. You know, that was really important to me. That was a like line that I didn't want to cross. And since he is really basically almost completely non-communicative 
with the kids, you know, he has very little dialogue over the course of the book. So much of it is his in, internal monologue, which is really like, you know, the way that you're seeing the world through his eyes is, uh, is vastly different. And I'm hoping that I got it right. I mean, I, you know, again, it's, it's challenging because I don't have um, Asperger's. I'm not on the autism spectrum. And my experience of this will always be secondhand. Um, but, you know, hopefully I came close to getting it, you know, true. And most of the people I know who have read it, who, you know, some of whom are on the spectrum have actually written very nice letters about it. So, um, you know, that was the other thing is I wanted this character to be portrayed as someone who was actually in a lot of ways, almost more capable than the other kids at some things, you know, I mean, he has like a skill set. like each of the kids brings their own unique talents to the story. Like without all of them working together, they would never have made it. So that's part of what I wanted to show. Makes sense. So they they, they complement each other nicely. And I'm tempted to say that Quentin's the heart of the story, but that's not yeah. really true because they're, they're all the heart of the story. They've all got an emotional arc before the end. He's the glue. I think that's the thing is he ends up becoming the glue of the story. And he cracked me up when he just started thinking of Vic as loud boy uh, and Mara as quiet girl. Like, yeah, nope, that, that sounds about right. Yeah. For, for that perspective. <laughs> See, while we're uh, talking about uh, Echo Park, I did want uh, to ask you, um, how long did this book take to write and how many drafts did you have to do to get it to where to where it was publishable and ready to go? Oof. Um, that's a good question. This this book went through, you know, it's funny because the other boy was quick. I feel like the other boy I probably wrote in like a month and a half, maybe. I mean, it just kind of poured out of me. Um, Echo Park, the first draft was more of a struggle for sure. You know, the ending in particular, I mean, one of the problems with writing without an outline is that getting to that ending, especially since I had to get them to a specific location, <laughs> was challenging. You know, I had to really figure that out in a way that would also be kind of scary and thrilling, but not too scary and thrilling and not, um, yeah, something that would surprise the audience. And so that was hard, you know, it was hard to get there. I mean, I feel like that might have taken me five or six months to finish maybe. And then that went through a lot of revision. And a lot of that was, you know, sensitivity reader feedback um, because, you know, I had, I, it was really important to me that each of these characters really represent the demographics that we have here in Los Angeles um, since that's where the book sets. So, you know, there's an African-American girl, there's two Latinx kids, there's, you know, uh, there's um, Quentin with Asperger's. And so, you know, I, that I, we needed to have sensitivity readers for all of those things. And so that ended up resulting in a lot more changes, um, you know, which was good. I mean, I think it was, it was really helpful for me to have that input because, you know, I wanted to make sure that I was true to all those populations. Oh, and I wanted to just say, I mean, just as an aside, when we're talking not about the book, but about the real world, one of the things that I say in my afterward, um, which I think is really important to address, is that the reason that we have so many people of color disproportionately represented in the foster care system is not because those kids are more likely to be abused or neglected. It's because they're more likely to be taken out of the home. You know, there is just like a institutionalized racism in the judicial system where, you know, for whatever reason, um, 
that is what happens, you know, and am I kind of a classic example? I have a friend who has a, had a three, who had a three-year-old and she was, you know, at home with the flu with the three-year-old and, you know, the mom was like on the couch, like completely out of it, just feeling like she was dying and uh, realized that there was a breeze in the living room and she hadn't seen the three-year-old in a while. Like she kind of dozed off, opened her eyes, felt a breeze, went out. And this was the day that the three-year-old had figured out how to open the front door. And she ran, you know, she went frantically like running through the neighborhood in like her pajamas and her slippers and three blocks away from their house by a really busy street. She sees a police car and a woman and her three-year-old sitting on the curb. And she races up to them and is just hysterical and explaining the situation. And, you know, the, cop ended up saying like, oh, of course, you know, we completely understand these things happen. And, you know, she took her child home and she, you know, we were talking about it afterwards and she's like, you know, all I could think about on the way home, um, cause she also works as a CASA is that if I was a person of color, there's a good chance I would not have been taking my child home with me that night because it would have been assumed that, you know, like, yeah, I wasn't a fit parent, but instead I just basically got a little like pat on the head and be more careful next time and maybe put in a childproof lock. So that's just something I want to make clear because, um, you know, I don't want anyone to misconstrue why the characters are the races that they are. Oh, hadn't, uh, hadn't even occurred to me, but that, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and unfortunately I, uh, I, I've talked about this before. I grew up uh, in an all, mostly all white, uh, Indiana, small Indiana town, um, mm-hmm. and everybody on TV was white in the eighties, mostly, uh, except for the the Cosby, yeah. the, the good wholesome Cosby family. There, there yeah. was surely no, never any trouble there. Um, and uh, then I uh, went to school and fell in love with an African American woman, and we got married. And it was just like uh, stepping uh, into or out of the matrix, and suddenly you can see, oh, oh, institutionalized yeah. racism is everywhere. I didn't yeah. have to pay attention to this, but. There it is. Yeah. There it is again. You know, you almost get sick of it. What's the answer to the riddle? Ah, it's racism again. Of course it is. Yeah. No, <sighs> it's very time. true. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll uh, let's 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 pivot to something uh, more cheerful. Not that. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, let's talk about uh, let's talk about the other boy. Um, okay. So that um, you said you wrote that, and you, you said a month and a half. Did I did I hear that right? I think so. Yeah, it was really fast. That was one of my faster books. Um, and I really, yeah, that, that one just, I mean, it was, a, that was a very personal story for me. I mean, it was based largely again, like on like kids that I know and have worked with. And so it was just material source material that I knew really, really well. And um, I don't know, in some ways it was an easier story. It's a little more compact, you know, Uh and it's about, you know, and a lot of it too is it's not just about, you know, this kid's experiences as a transgender boy. Like a lot of it is about, you know, the fact that he's also, you know, a child with divorced parents and kind of having to juggle that. And he's got his first crush and he's trying to figure out how to navigate that. And he and his best friend are having issues for the first time in their relationship. And, you know, and he's also got like the weight on his shoulders of the, bas- the baseball championship you know, and he's the star pitcher and it's sort of all on him to help them win the big game. So in that way, like I wanted to make him really relatable because he's going through a lot of things that kids his age who are not transgender are going through. 
So, um, well, let's stick with uh, let's stick with the boring stuff, and we'll talk a little bit more about uh, the story. Uh, but just just plain boring stuff that's only really only interesting <laughs> for the, the sort of folks that would tune into a show like this about writing. Um, how many drafts after that initial month and a half first are you looking for, and what? How long was the process to find uh, a publisher or an agent and all of that? You know, it was pretty quick actually. I mean, I honestly like we went to auction with this book. Probably, I mean, it was I don't know. Maybe I'd done one or two revisions at that point. I mean, when I write, I just I, I'm I'm a big believer in just writing it all at once without looking back at all. I do not edit at all if I write. And it's the one piece of advice that I offer to aspiring writers or people who are trying to finish their first, first book because I know so many people who got like 50 pages into a novel and then um, were like, hey, you know, this is great. Like I'm making progress. Like let's move it along. Like let's see what I've got so far. And the truth is that editing is a much, much slower process than writing for most people. I know it is for me. I mean, it probably takes me four times as long to edit a page as it does to write it in the first place. Um, I can spend an entire day on, you know, a chapter or a scene or even a page. So um, by the time that they've gotten back up to that 50 page mark and they've edited it, I feel like it's, it's suddenly like writing the rest of the book starts to feel really insurmountable most of the times. Like, I don't know if you've ever read Bill Bryson um, he's like a really funny travel writer who has this book called A Walk in the Woods about trying to undertake the Appalachian Trail, you know, which goes from like, I think it's like Georgia to Maine, right? And he and this kind of hilarious buddy of his decide they're going to walk, hike the Appalachian Trail, even though they're sort of out of shape, middle-aged white guys. And so they start hiking and like, you know, and the thing is like the beginning of the book is a disaster. Like they're totally unprepared. Like the friend only brought like a backpack full of like little Debbie's snack cakes. You know, <laughs> they're like, they're horribly out of shape. They really overpacked. Um, and then like, you know, like a couple chapters in, they're like, I don't know. And like, they're making progress. Like they're really feel like, okay, we got this now. We know where to go, how to camp. Like we've got our windowed down over supplies. We've got the, only the stuff we need. And so they stop at this general store off the trail that has a big map of the trail. And they're like, Hey, like, let's see where we are. Like, this is great. We must we're really been making progress like these last few weeks. And they realize that like the Appalachian trails like this and they're like here. Like they're still like, they've barely even registered on the map of the trail yet. And it's this incredibly frustrating thing. And I feel like for a lot of writers who stop and start editing at that 50 page point, that's how they feel, right? Like they're here on the trail and it starts to feel like, oh my God, like I'm never going to get there. So oh, for me, for that makes sense. Yeah. So for me, I mean, I write the entire book. I mean, I don't even look back. I've got like typos it's just a hot mess. Like I just burn through it as fast as I can, because especially since I don't plot it out in advance, I really just need to get the bones of the story in place. Um, at least a version of them and then see if it works and see what I've got. And then I go back through and it's like painstaking. I, mean, I honestly can't say I probably on average, I probably do 15 or 20 revisions of each book, but some of that's like, you know, I'll revise one chapter 20 times. And some chapters end up more or less staying the same from the first time that I sat down to write them all the way through to publication. So it just 
kind of varies, you know? I mean, and I also believe, like I always tell people, I mean, this is what works for me. It might not work for another person. Like I always get really irritated when writers advice is like, you have to write every day. And I'm like, that is nonsense. I don't know anyone who writes every day. I mean, there, I know people who say they write every day. There is no <laughs> way that every single person who says that is writing every day. Like, you know, I'm a mom and I have a life and there are like weeks sometimes where I can't write, but that doesn't mean that I'm not a writer, you know? And I also know people who spend 15 years finishing one book and people who write three books a year, you know, and they're all, writers who are just doing it in a different way. So um, I think that's the challenge is just figuring out what your own particular path is. So what uh, what is your typical writing day look like? My typical day is like I drop my kids at school. Um, I usually try to exercise or take the dog for a hike, which accomplishes two things in one fell swoop. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, around like 10 o'clock, 1030, maybe I like really sit down to it. I mean, my goal is to get two or three hours a day, you know, if, especially if I'm just in the writing phase, like I, I just burn out after that. I feel like I get less and less productive the longer that I try and write. I mean, people who can do a 12 hour writing jag, I bow down to them. I can't do that. I can edit that way, but when I'm actually writing the book the first time through, I can't do that. Um, and so, yeah, I do that for a couple of hours and, you know, and then like deal with emails or marketing or whatever else I have to do. And then, you know, the kids are home from school and we're making dinner and running around to all the various activities. And, you know, that's kind of my day. So, you know, I know there. I know there are people who get up at five in the morning to write. God help me if I had to be one of those writers, I would never <laughs> write a book. <laughs> like I don't know. I have like my friend who gets up to exercise at that at that hour. I'm like, what is wrong with you? Like, oh my god, no. I used to be one of those writers before my my son was born, but ever ever since then, for the last five years, uh, if I get up early, there's no point because he gets up early. So I'm like, exactly. all right, four thirty, time to write. Nope, baby's up. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now I'm just tired. I, I could have slept yeah. and, and wrote later. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Get get the sleep. I feel like especially as a parent, like get the sleep, you know, and find the windows that you can. And, you know, and there was a time when I was traveling like a lot and I would just figure out, you know, I would I would write in airports like I feel like, you know, even if you only manage to write a page a day, by the end of the year, you've got a book. Right. So you know, maybe somewhat, maybe one week I might write, you know, 25 pages or 30 pages. Maybe the next week I only get two, but you know, sooner or later the book gets done. I think on average, a book takes me about three months usually. Um, you know, that's probably like, and that's like taking some time. Oh, and the other thing that I do is, uh, I don't look things up. Like, you know, if I need to figure out like, oh, I need a, a specific place or in this book, a lot of it was like buses and train lines, right? Trying to map out the exact journey these kids would take. And of course, after I published it, like they changed all of those routes and of numbers. So I was like, ah, like this is ridiculous. But um, yeah, I try and get- Thanks, I, I, Los I, Angeles I, Metro system, help us out. <laughs> exactly. So. If I need to look something up or I need to like name a character and I don't have the I don't have the name on the off the top of my head, I put in like brackets. It's something that someone like said once at a conference and it really stuck with me because brackets don't occur naturally in any other writing scenario. So at the end of the book, when I'm done, I go back through and I fill in the brackets. And that's when I do 
my deep dive down the rabbit hole of internet searches. Well, that's smart. I uh, do the same thing. I just put a, I make up a word, put it in bold, get back to it. And I'll do that sometimes even with characters. If I'm, if I'm, you know, I, I, I've spent a lot of time on my main characters, but if I've got just an ancillary character that I don't know that's going to be in more than one or two chapters yet, I'll just name them. I don't have time to come up with a good name for them. So I'll give them like a movie star's name uh, and just put that in bold, like find a better name. When you figure out how much they're going to be in the story and how much we care about them, then go back and really invest and, and flesh them out if needed or right. maybe cut them completely. Right. And then um, was the um, was the other boy your first uh, book that you'd written or had you written books prior to that to develop your craft? Um, I actually have other books under other names. I'm one of those writers who has, you know, a series of pen names. And so I, you know, kind of going back to that, like privacy versus um, secrecy thing. Like I try to keep a bit of a wall between those different personalities. Um, so, you know, I've actually written 12 books and well, I've written 15 books. I've published 12 books. Um, so I have a some other very different novels out there. Um, but yeah, but these are the only ones that I have for this age group. And so yeah. I wanted to, especially since the other books would really not be appropriate for kids, I wanted to have a very clear delineation <laughs> between these and those. <laughs> I should do that, but I just assume uh, putting the super secret pen name Robert Kent keeps him out. Nope, that's that's airtight. They'll never, they'll, they'll never, they'll that. never figure it out. <laughs> so uh, did you already have uh, an agent in place then when you'd written the other boys? I did. And that made it a lot easier. Um, you know, and I think that, you know, this is actually my third agent. Um, I had my first agent retired on me. My second agent, uh, there were some issues. I actually got fired by an editor because they disliked dealing with that agent so much that, um, I found out afterwards they the reason my contract had not been renewed was because they loathed this agent. So I switched um, and I've been with the same agent now for about 10 years and uh, and she's wonderful and um, I'm really happy with her. I feel like, uh, you know, the process of getting an agent is very different now than it was when I was. I mean, I actually like was in the era where you had to mail the first 25 pages of your manuscript with a query letter, you know, I mean, sure. I had to go to the post is crazy, like uh, dark ages. Um, oh no, I've still in the post office with a stack of envelopes and uh, yeah. getting in the mailbox two or three weeks later and there's five <laughs> of myself and rest stamped envelopes. I'm like, Oh, that can't be good. Those are, those came back too soon. Right, right, right. Um, no. So I've been really lucky with my agent, but I've also learned, I think by having gone through a couple of agents that, um, my advice in general for people who are looking for an agent, I think conferences are the best place to find them. I think if there's any way you can get to a conference where there are agents who are like taking on clients, um, that's great. I also feel like you want to go down a rung in the agency. Like I would not necessarily go for, you know, the biggest agent, you know, or the most famous one. I feel like it's, it's good to go down a couple of rungs, especially going to someone younger, because your agent is going to be with you, hopefully for your whole career. And you want someone who's still kind of young and hungry. Um, I feel like I did make that mistake with my first agent because she retired on me. You know, she was wonderful. She had her own agency, but um, you know, two years in, she decided she wanted to spend more time with her grandchildren, which I completely respected, but it meant that I was kind of out of luck. 
because that's my other piece of advice is don't go to a one person shop or even a two or three person shop. Um, I like an agency that's mid-sized, um, particularly if they have a legal department, because I know that um, there's sort of this assumption that all contracts are boilerplate, but they're not. And there are things that I've gotten in later contracts and things that the legal departments at my agency have caught that none of my other agents ever even noticed. Um, and I things that are, that are important, like cover approval, you know, title approval, like things that make a big difference. So I would say that's, that's what I'm like, I feel like that's where I didn't do enough research at the beginning. Like I was just so excited to get an agent, you know, and have anybody who wanted to represent me that I was just like, I leapt at the first person who responded. And I wish that I had taken more time at the beginning because I think it would have really helped me in the end. Oh, but it's hard when you've been querying and, and writing for God um, knows how long. And somebody says, I like you. You're yeah. special. <gasps> exactly. <laughs> That's exactly. all the qualification no, I, I need. Like, I know. Would you like and then to check some of my previous clients and verify me. No, you like me. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's the other thing is I actually have friends who um, I have one friend who it turns out her agent was stealing from her. And, you know, again, it was like a one person shop and the agent basically just stopped responding to her at one point. And then later she found out that there was like a lot of, you know, when she actually started really going through her royalty contracts, that there was like a lot of money missing. So there, there are a lot of those stories out there. Um, and I'm probably going to get a lot of angry emails from like one person agencies. <laughs> I'm sure there are some good ones. I'm sure there are some good ones. MG Hennessy's views do not reflect the views of the show. Middle grade <laughs> uh, is, is, is impartial. We're, we're happy to chat with all uh, any literary agents who are available. Come on, tell us about your one person agency shop and why it's the best possible thing. That'll be a, be a great conversation. No, I always uh, put that caveat, uh, whether you're listening to an episode of the show or whether you're at the blog where there's hundreds of literary agent interviews available right now at middlegradeninja.com. Um, I don't do that much research beyond verifying that they're not an obvious scam artist. Uh, and in the cases, there have been a couple where it comes back that the agent has been found misbehaving. In fact, one yeah. uh, agent got blown up for, for stealing royalties. Um, and all I do in that case is I put a note on the top of the blog with a link to that verified, do your homework beyond me. I can't do all that homework for you. Yeah. I have a child. I have my own books to write. I've got this podcast. I've, I've got plenty on my plate. Um, so you, you need to do your research and you need to go to one, more than one location. But I don't take those interviews down. Um, I just put a note there. So nothing's been substantiated. I've just heard rumors. I don't even do that. Uh, because I think the interviews with bad literary agents also have a lot to teach us. So I love having those posts. <laughs> well, and I think the other thing too, though, is that, um, you know, I mean, that's like, I, again, like the conferences, like I feel like the, the best way to get that information is to talk to other authors about who their agents are and what they like about them. You know, I mean, that's invaluable. Since you've got a, a good literary agent, are you comfortable telling us uh, who you're represented by? Um, yes, I'm with uh, I'm with Steph Roston at Levine Greenberg and Roston, and she's been really wonderful. And you know, she's got like much more high profile clientele than me. Like, unfortunately, I don't know that she's actually taking anyone anymore. I sort of like slid in the door, like right as she was closing the gates. But um, 
yeah, she's been amazing. And I think, you know, I think that's a lot of it too, is a lot of it with an agent is you have to have a relationship with them. Like, you know, I consider her a friend. Like we, you know, can go out to dinner and talk for three hours about, you know, completely subjects that have nothing to do with writing her books. So I think that's important too. That's something to factor in. And then, um, can you give us some uh, juicy details? Because I know this is what the audience craves about the second agent who we won't name. Uh, what, what sort of behavior were they up to that was upsetting your publisher that they didn't want to renew your contract? So what happened was um, I, uh, I ended up um, finding out afterwards, this is when I, I signed again, like with sort of a storied older agent. But it turned out that the person who actually was representing me and doing most of the communication with the publishers was uh, his kind of mentee who he had just taken into the company. And this was again like a one-person shop. Um, who you know who his? I think this kid was like the assistant who was answering the phones and then sort of stepped in and was doing most of the day-to-day -day work, which I was not aware of when I signed with them. So. This was when the show Entourage was super popular. Do you remember that show? Oh, of course. Based on, and it was based on like Ari Emanuel, who's a big talent agent here in Los Angeles, who is like notorious for his temper and for, you know, kind of the borderline abusive way that he treats underlings and people in negotiations. So I feel like the kid, you know, cause he was a kid who was um, doing the day-to-day -day work really emulated that character. And so my understanding is that when he would get on the phone with the publisher, like it was this very aggressive kind of like, you know, persona that he had adopted that was very off-putting, <laughs> let's put it that way. So that's my understanding is that like, it was a lot of sort of, you know, he would pick up with the phone and be like, you know, hey, like, you know, my client told you that they don't like this cover. Like, what are you going to do about it? And, you know. <laughs> with expletives, uh, I'm sure trailed, trailed I'm in between. Sure, I mean, it was like, I, I don't, you know, and, I, and, and unfortunately, like, I had no idea that any of that was going on. I mean, really, like, I had no idea. So it was only really well afterwards when I ran into that editor at a conference that the story came out. And, you know, that was really upsetting. So you know, at that point I jumped ship, but yeah, it's tough. You just, you know, you need to have that trust. I think that's the thing is I know that my agent now would never do that. But you survived it. Your career is flourishing. Yeah, Here you yeah, are yeah. on the middle grade ninja show. My God. <laughs> you know, it did like it, it basic, but it did end a relationship with a publisher, you know? So I ended up going to a different publishing house after that. And that was, you know, I mean, I think that's the thing is that a lot of it as an author is building those relationships, you know, and you let, and it's great if you can have one editor be your champion for the bulk of your career. Like, I feel like that's something that we don't get as much anymore. That's sort of like the old school, you know, you'd sit in like with like a cigar and a brandy in a study with your editor and have like conversations and they would be your friend. They'd be like sort of your Ezra Pound, right? Like we don't really get that anymore. You know, there's so much more movement and transition and, um, and the, a lot of times the editors are super young now, you know, which isn't necessarily a bad thing again. Oh my gosh, here we go. <laughs> we got a special cameo appearance. We, back, have, yeah. we have, a, we have Mr. Slippers is paying a visit. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome 
of the show, Mr. Slippers. We've right. enjoyed your appearance. Oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He managed to actually open the door. It's hilarious. The animals are was, getting. Uh, when I did my episode with Susan K. Quinn, my cat uh, busted out and it had a little bell on her collar. So you can hear this little bell jingling. <laughs> and then at one point, she crawled across here and fell into a trash can. Uh, so oh I was just God. like, is that something you need to attend to? Nope, the cat's yeah. already run off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hello. Very insistent on getting some att attention. <laughs> well, I know we're uh, we're coming up near the end of our time. It always flies by so fast. It's, it's so nice to have a conversation with somebody about writing and, and nobody's allowed to look at their cell phone. It's great. Um, so I have to ask because esteemed readers come after me when I don't, or esteemed audience comes after me when I don't. Uh, M.G. Hennessy, have you seen a flying saucer and do you believe in them? Um, I absolutely believe in them. I mean, you've seen all of those like Navy reports, right? Like all the stuff that's come out lately where they have to kind of, they finally had to kind of acknowledge that they do have a division that's looking into it. Yeah, mm -hmm. I need to start asking this question is why don't you believe in flying saucers? But I, 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 I mean, the universe is huge. You know, I mean, of course there's intelligent life out there somewhere else, you know, and they're probably much more intelligent than we are. Like, <laughs> I would, I, I have no doubt about that. I, I've never seen one. Um, but then again, I have almost always lived in places where there is so much light pollution that I feel like I wouldn't see one unless it actually landed on my doorstep. Yeah, and then you, you, you've got bigger problems. <laughs> yeah, you know, or, or brand new friends. That's I don't true. know. I mean, could it be worse at this point? <laughs> <laughs> well, without getting too political, that's one little pet theory I have. Because um, I keep hearing this argument that um, I, I heard Steven Spielberg make the argument in uh, Close Encounters, the umpteenth yeah. release, that he was losing heart because he would think that in the communication age with everybody walking around with camera phones, there, there'd be more video of them. And she's like, dude, have you been on YouTube? <laughs> That's all there is, is videos of flying saucers. Is that true? It's that and cat videos. Um, so my, my, my suspicion is that uh, now that we are in the information age and communication is moving so much faster that we are seeing pretty much just short of disclosure at this point with, with everything that's come out. And I kind of think that if we get impeachment proceedings started, they're going to dump this on Trump, make him the disclosure. <laughs> <laughs> He's going actually, out anyway. <laughs> I actually believe that like they don't want us to see them. Like, because they're like, we are not going anywhere near that hot mess. Like, well, that's understandable. Like, <laughs> right? Like, that's my feeling is like, you know, if they're advanced enough to like shoot across the galaxy, then they're probably advanced enough to like hide that fact from us. So, yeah. I would. I'd, I'd approach with uh, I mean, extreme caution. Yeah. So, okay, well, let's let's go back to talking about writing because that's, uh, that's important. I'm going to ask you uh, two more questions and we'll, we'll call it a night. Because uh, okay. I know you've got uh, eager cats uh, uh, yeah. that are uh, waiting for you. Like staging um, I wanted a to ask, jailbreak. <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, what's your favorite reader reaction to something you've written? Um, I got a really lovely letter from a uh, trans boy um, after the other boy came out, uh, handwritten, which doesn't happen very often. Um, you know, and that's, oh, that's something I also want to say, especially for like middle grade readers is a lot of people don't realize that uh, if you loved a book or you have a question about a book, um, most authors are really accessible online. Like you can email them or hit them up on Instagram or Twitter, or, you know, I think, feel like we're all on every single platform now because the publishers want us to be. Um, but, you know, reach out and ask them, be like, you know, tell them you like their book. I mean, we're, you know, we're all desperate to hear that like you know it's really always wonderful to hear 
But I got this letter from a trans boy who um, had not come out to his family yet and was terrified to. And uh, reading the book actually gave him the courage to come out to his parents. And because of that, he had finally started his transition. And that one for me was really special because he felt like, he, you know, in reading the book, um, he really identified with Shane and he felt like seeing Shane's courage in the book kind of helped give him courage. So for me, that was like a really remarkable letter to get and something that, you know, I'm always going to treasure. Well, yeah. Who else would you write a, a book like that for, if not for that, that person yeah. in that situation? Well, that's spectacular. I'm, I'm glad that happened. I'd also have the caveat that uh, if you're going to take the time to write a nice letter about how much you love a book, especially if it's email, copy and paste that, post it, post it on Goodreads, post it on Amazon, <laughs> put five stars. Very true. Uh, Very true. Thank you, Mr. Roman. And then my next question for you, uh, because we, uh, we, we just don't have the time to discuss craft as deeply as it like. So just my catch-all question is if there was one piece of advice somebody could have given to you when you started writing that would have made a significant difference in your writing career, what would that piece of advice have been? Oh, um, you know, I feel like I did get that advice, which was uh, know when to walk away from a book. Um, because my first novel, which I spent years on, on and off, and which actually started as like a series of short stories. Uh, that was the one that I did the, you know, the mass mailing like 50 agents and got, you know, 50 rejections ranging from like form letters to polite, no thank yous. Um, and I really tried for, you know, and I would, some people would be like, hey, maybe if you rewrite this, maybe if you write that. And so I spent a lot of time constantly revising that book. I mean, I sort of joked that that book was my masters in writing class because you know i just kept at it and kept at it and i had a friend finally um who was a fairly well-known author who sat me down one night and said time to move on like you know what maybe someday that book you go back to that book with fresh eyes and that's you know and that's the other thing is like i always advocate putting a book away after you finish the first draft lock it up if you can for two to four weeks don't look at it at all. And then when you go back to it, you really do see it with fresh eyes. But this I had done over and over with that book. And they were like, enough. Either you're, you know, if you're a writer, you have more than one book in you. And I believe that you have more than one book in you and you need to like explore that. And so I sat down the next night, really disheartened um, and really not excited to start another book. And I had the idea for an opening scene and decided to just see where it would take me. And, you know, then looked up and I'd written 10 pages and that was the book that got me an agent. And that was the first thing that I got published. So I think that's the thing is I think, you know, persistence is important. Everyone always says persistence when I'm on a panel and this questions gets asked, but I also feel like, um, you know, there's time to do a little bit of a reality check and know that, I don't know, I feel like it's, um, it wasn't Joyce Carol Oates, it was, who wrote To Die For? I'm blanking on her name right now. Um, gosh, she's such a great writer. But anyway, but she actually talked about how she, or, or Michael Chabon, like the classic stories, like The Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, which he ended up getting the Pulitzer floor. He wrote The Wonder Boys when he was struggling so much with 
Cavalier and Clay, like the manuscript in the Wonder Boys. I don't know if you've read it or seen the movie. Oh, but God, yes, and, and gone it, to see Mr. Uh, Shabon speak, and he, he right. gave me a big hug, and, uh, and and we took our picture together. It was one of the happiest moments of my life. Mr. Shabon, please come on the show. Continue. Yeah. So that's one of the jokes is like, that's that's the manuscript in the movie and in the book, right? It's like, that's mm -hmm. supposed to be like Cavalier and Clay. And to give himself a break from it, he wrote the Wonder Boys, like kind of on a tear, you know, it's just sort of like a fun, like distraction. And then when he went back, he was able to finish Cavalier and Clay. So I, this was the thing is I feel like, you know, it's sort of like the no one to walk away, you know, no one to run, right? Like, sure. <laughs> listen to Kenny Rogers. Sometimes you got to walk away. That's the writing advice that we that we want people to take away. Kenny Rogers, don't don't miss out. Um, no one to fold them. <laughs> sneaky, uh, sneaky follow up question: Have you ever revisited that that novel that you walked away from? Yes, and it's terrible. It's terrible. <laughs> I mean, really, sorry, like honestly, know? I'm like I actually reread it. Was like it was so generous of the people who did submit feedback to do that because it is ghastly. Like it's just. I mean, I think it was, you know very much a product of who I was at that time. And it was like largely, you know, it was sort of semi-autobiographical and yeah, it was just a really bad book, honestly. Like it is unsalvageable. I have other books. I have two other books sitting in a drawer that I think could be salvaged at some point, but um, I don't know if I'm up for going back to them. I mean, I'm always one of those people who kind of goes forward, you know, it's tough for me to go back. Like I don't reread books um, aside from Star Wars. I don't generally rewatch movies. You know, I'm just like, I'm all about the new. I think Stephen King said that uh, his old books are, he's like a snake and those are the, the skins that he shed and he's moving on yeah. to the next one. And I believe that too. Like, I like to think that you improve with every book, that you learn something with every book, you know, kind of like with relationships, like you take something away with them. But, you know, even looking back like that, even that first book I got published, I look back now and I would change a lot of things in it if I could. You know, I feel like it's not, I'm a better writer now than I was when I wrote that book. Which is good. Wouldn't it be terrible if it was the other way around? It, it would. It would indeed be terrible if it was the other way around. Well, MG Hennessy, this, is, this has been a blast. Uh, we laughed. We had fun. We, we talked about all, all manner of things. What a wonderful episode for, for a steam reader to, 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 or a steamed audience to find. Thank you very much for making the time to do this. Where uh, can a steamed audience find you online? Where can they stalk you? Well, all of the ways to find me online are on my website, mghennessy.com. Mind you, it's Hennessy E-Y, not just Y, like the drink. Um, and yeah, I'm on Instagram. I mean, I'm pretty easy to find. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. To be honest, you know, I'll give the caveat that I'm not extremely active on any of those sites just because I do feel like social media becomes more of a distraction for me um, than it's worth. Like I've, I've made a big effort to kind of step back from it to some extent over the last couple of months. Uh, I'm really only on Instagram to keep track of my kids. So, <laughs> but, I, but I will respond. I will respond if you reach out to me there. Every time I get a new Twitter follow where I just feel pity for them. I look forward to my five tweets a week. <laughs> yeah, that. exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, esteemed audience, uh, as always, uh, make sure you uh, head to middlegradeninja.com. Check out all the reviews there. Keep up with what's going on uh, with the show. Make sure you come back about the same time tomorrow when we're talking with Debbie Daddy. Uh, that's going to be amazing. Uh, do not forget, it's an easy contest to enter. Look at this. 
quality book, something uh, like Gravity. Uh, and the Echo Park Castaways, you're going to get brand new, never read, barely touched. I'm trying not to smudge the covers as I hold them up here. Uh, barely touched books, plus one of mine, your choice, any of my books that you want signed. Uh, I'll, I'll even make it out to eBay if you want. And all you have to do is between now and August 15th, subscribe to my channel, Rob Kent at uh, YouTube. Just do a search for Middle Grade Ninja. And why wouldn't you want to subscribe? Look how much great content we got out of just this one episode. And brother, there are 28 other episodes. Every bit is packed with amazing content. So make sure you check that out and more on the way. Uh, MG, I've been asking our guests to sign us off. Uh, and our sign-off phrase is hiya and what have you. Will you sign us off? Hiya and what have you. <laughs>